everyone. Welcome to episode nine of Coffee with the Queen. I'm Nicole. And I'm Cindy. We hope you are all safe and well. Today we are covering the life of the coffee bean, so from seed to processing to export. After our bean banter, Cindy is going to share some of her delicious spring coffee-based recipes, hopefully fill you and your home with a feeling of joy. I tell you guys, I'm a sucker for these coffee-based baked goods. I just want to reach through the computer and grab them out of her blog when I see them. If you're interested in learning more about anything mentioned today, please visit our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com, or our podcast site, coffeewiththequeen.podbean.com. We have links to more in-depth blog entries on both sites and links to the recipes that Cindy will mention. So let's jump into that beautiful caffeine-packed bit of amazingness that is the coffee bean. Or is it? Actually, it's not. Our beloved coffee bean is the seed of a coffee cherry. So coffee cherries grow on coffee plants or shrubs that range in 12 to 16 feet in height. And while there are over 100 different species of coffee plants, many of them are wild, there are two primary ones that we speak about often. That's the Arabica and the Robusta, and they are very, very different. So Arabica plants are delicate. They grow at high elevations, 3,500 to 7,000 feet above sea level, and they thrive in moderate temperatures with well-drained soil. They only yield one crop or occasionally two crops per year, but two crops would be the maximum. Arabicas are also very susceptible to disease. So if you have heard or read about coffee rust, that's primarily affecting Arabica plants. They're beautiful, wonderful plants that just delicate <laughs> in terms of being susceptible to any kind of environmental damage. Robusta, on the other hand, is exactly as it sounds. It's a really robust plant that can grow at low elevations, direct sun, and can withstand really extreme weather conditions. It also produces multiple crops per year. So this may make Robusta sound more attractive because it's hardy and very productive, but it's really a low-grade coffee. Robusta, because it can grow so quickly, lacks the extraordinary flavor range and cleanliness that you'll find on an Arabica, and it's universally considered a lower-grade coffee. So while the coffee cherry structure is the same in both Arabica and Robusta, but for the rest of this episode, we're really only focusing on Arabicas. So Arabica coffee grows close to the equator in mountainous tropical or semi-tropical environments. It's often referred to as the bean belt. So if you Google bean belt, you'll notice that it's this ring that runs around the equator on the whole earth. And that is where all of our Arabica coffee is grown. There may be a few exceptions, but the best Arabica coffee is going to grow in this bean belt. And that's because the bean belt has dense forests, a near perfect temperate climate, it has everything that Arabica coffee wants. I mentioned forests. Arabica needs to grow under a protective canopy, and preferably that canopy will be natural old growth forests that shade these delicate plants from direct sun. Occasionally on larger farms, you'll see that Arabica is grown under an artificial tarp, which is also fine. The Arabica plant needs a protective cover to produce high quality coffee cherries as excessive sun, rain, or extreme temperatures will either drown or scorch the plant. So a happy, healthy, well-cared for plant generally produces its first crop around the age of three years and will continue to produce crops for the next eight to nine years and possibly as long as 40 years if it's grown in ideal conditions and indoor if it's left in the wild. So as a plant matures, the structure of the seed is actually going to change and become richer and fuller until the two seeds fail to split and develop into a single seed that's known as a pea berry. The reason I'm mentioning this is that I said the coffee tree can live 40 years but you know it really has its prime time probably from like 10 to 12 years of age and that's because production goes down so the 
the coffee cherry seed starts off as one in a young plant and then it splits down the center. And that's that line that you see when you look at a coffee bean, that little squiggle that goes down the center. That's where the seeds split. As the plant gets older, it can't split. And see, so they're really round bean. That's a pea berry. And pea berries are delicious. They're full of flavor. They have the flavor and the structure and the nutrients that normally would be shared between two seeds. But it's much less productive. So to give you some, some context, a coffee tree in its prime, you know, somewhere between that 10 to 13 year mark, is capable of producing at best 40,000 green beans per year, which comes out to only a single pound of coffee. Wow. So that's one tree? That's one tree. You know, one tree in its prime produces one pound of coffee. An older tree, which can have a really wonderful flavor, like the pea berries, could produce much less. <laughs> so it could produce three quarters of a pound. Or if it's a very old tree, it could even produce just a half a pound. Nicole, you're talking about one tree producing about a pound. So let's say there's a small farm. Is there a typical number of trees that would make up a lot for them to sell? Like, is there a minimum no, amount? Nope. It's really whatever the, the farmer has. Or it's, in some places, these farms are really just people's personal backyard farms. It could be nine trees. It could be 90 trees. It could be 9,000 trees on a big farm. You could have a tree in your backyard that you nurture and cultivate you know if you lived in the bean belt and you could harvest and process those beans and sell your pound and that could be your farm's coffee yeah honestly that's like a dream to me to be living <laughs> in the tropics with coffee trees in my backyard yeah they grow <laughs> in the tropics there may be a designation for what that's considered a commercial farm but i don't know what that is and i we don't really deal with commercial farms although i don't think there is i think it's really just the nature of how they sell and how they process Okay, I have one more question for you because you talked mm -hmm. about the pea berry, which is actually so flavorful and delicious. Mm -hmm. But I'm also familiar with those really large beans. Does that have anything to do with the tree? No. So that's actually a variety. So Arabica and Robusta are different species of coffee plants. And then within those species, there's different varieties. And so my Gopi, Tipica, Paca, Bourbon, those are all different varieties within the Arabica species. So it's kind of like saying Arabica is an apple tree. The Mygopi, the Paca, and the Tipica would all be like different kinds of apples. So like a Fuji, a Gala, a Granny Smith. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'll have to do a podcast about varietals. Yeah, we should. Yeah, and just to be clear, the pea berry can develop from any tree. That's actually just a mutation. It gets very complicated. It can, the coffee can get very complicated if you want to dig in. Back to our little tree. So the first sign of uh, a tree being ready to produce is the appearance of this beautiful fragrant white flower that you may have seen on coffee bags. For those of you who are wondering why there's a flower in your coffee bag, that is the coffee flower. And that is the indication to growers all around the world that the plant is ready to produce. So a flower lasts for a few days before falling off and being replaced by a green cherry. As the cherry matures, it turns from green to shades of red until it's this bright, beautiful, almost whiny color red that indicates that it's ready to be picked. The cherry seed or bean spends the first phase of its life preparing to be its own plant one day. So it's harvesting nutrients from the plant, from the soil. It's developing a strong personal character in terms of flavor tones and texture. And that takes time and work. I know we're gonna do a little personification here. Coffee farmers like their plants to struggle. It's almost like these plants are in this kind of survival for the fittest and the strongest, hardiest plant that works the hardest is the one that's going to survive. Those plants that live and, and make it in the Arabica growing zone 
have really incredible flavor because they have deep roots that have been really pulling up all the nutrients and all the sugars from the soil. And they've had time to nurture and create a wonderful structure within the seed. The reason I'm mentioning this is that these hearty, strong beans are often plotted right on the bag. When you see the words strictly hard or hard bean on a bag of coffee, you know right away that it's an Arabica bean and that it's grown in these ideal, superb conditions that made it fight for its life. It's this time and effort that gives Arabica beans their extraordinary character. And don't worry, some of those seeds do go on to become full-fledged plants. I'm very glad to hear that. I would hate to think that after working so hard, their progeny do not go on to live full lives and give us some more of that wonderful, wonderful coffee beans that we love. You know, all the plants that we have now are descendants of the original plants from Ethiopia. Farmers are very, very cautious to have a good balance between picking and and, um, using beans for reproduction. The struggle also makes sense because like many of the good things in life, that hard, hard struggle makes the end result much more worth it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very much like wine, where you want your wine to struggle. So I thought it was in this dry, arid climate. Yes, we, we applaud the struggle. It does have a great benefit. So once perfectly ripe, coffee cherries are ideally harvested by hand. And that's to protect the unripe cherries from being picked and to protect the branch from being damaged. I know that they do have mechanical pickers, but I have never heard of an Arabica farm that uses a mechanical picker. It would be very difficult to get up to the mountain, but it would also, more importantly, damage the plant. Almost all Arabica is picked by hand. And the reason I'm going to mention this, just to give you a sense of how cared for and how monitored these plants are from the time they're planted to the time that they reach the processing plant. You have teams of pickers that go up into the mountains and do arduous, dangerous work on the sides of cliffs. You often see pictures of them hanging on to branches as they're picking coffee. Putting these coffee cherries into baskets that they're carrying on their arms and on their backs. At the end of the day, they carry these beans, again, on their backs, on their heads, on mules or burrows, down from the, the mountains down to the processing plant where it can be processed. And so this processing plant is often referred to as a mill or beneficio. And that is where we transform these cherries into exportable green coffee. Nicole, I heard that some pickers actually have bracelets that are colored to the perfect color of cherry ripeness, and they use them as guides to pick the perfect cherries only at the optimal point. That could very well be true. I'm sure every farmer, every family has their own method of determining when a coffee cherry is optimal for picking. That makes sense to me. I know that some more sophisticated farms use sugar readers. In Sumatra, I believe they do it very often by scent because these are generations of families that have been growing coffee and they can smell when the sugar level's right. I mean, wow, just the level of individual care and perfection that goes into giving us our cup, it's just incredible. Wow. It is. It's a lot of work. You look at a bag of coffee beans and you wouldn't think it's passed through so many hands and through so many different transformations before it reaches us. But to your point, too, I think it's really important to know that it's a fruit. So it behaves like a fruit. Even before it becomes coffee, it has a scent. It has a certain texture. Yeah, it has this character. So, Nicole, what is the next step in the bean's life? The next step, once we get to the mill, is coffee processing. And for those of you unfamiliar with the term, coffee processing is the art of transforming a freshly picked coffee cherry into what we know as green coffee beans. So while processing isn't regularly discussed, it really plays a determining role in creating the bean's final flavor profile. During processing, nearly all of the material surrounding the coffee cherry, so starting with the outermost layer, that's the husk, and the husk includes the skin and the pulp, 
and below that you have the mucilage, below that you have the parchment, and then below that you have the silver skin. The silver skin is only removed during roasting. At that point, it's referred to as chaff. But during processing, they remove the material above the silver skin to the actual skin from the cherry seed and dry it until it reaches a humidity level of around 11%. How that material is removed depends on the type of processing, and there are four primary types of processing. Dry processing, wet processing, semi-washing, and honey processing. The method of processing used to clean a coffee bean greatly impacts its flavor, acidity, texture, and just overall profile. Starting with dry processing, which is the oldest form of processing, also referred to as natural or traditional processing, freshly picked coffee cherries are laid out in the full sun to ferment and dry. During this drying process, cherries must be turned multiple times per day to protect the beans against rot, and they have to be covered again in the evening to protect them against rainfall. As the cherry dries, they'll ferment and the bean absorbs the pulp, it's like the meaty part, brilliant fruit flavors, as well as flavors of their drying surface, which could be earth, concrete, brick, or airy raised beds. The coffee seeds and grounds are really, really absorbent and they'll pick up scents and flavors from anything that surrounds them. So, you know, if you take the same beans and you dry part of them on the ground, part of them on brick, part of them on concrete, and then part of them on an open bed, they'll all taste slightly different. The ones that have grown on the ground will be slightly earthier. The ones grown on a high raised bed will probably be the sweetest. My mom loves to have coffee that's dried on brick because it gets this really unique, almost, I don't know, I can't describe it, but it has a very unique character. Dry processed cherries generally take several weeks to dry and must be diligently cared for throughout the entire process. Once dried, the husk, mucilage, and hull, so the four outermost layers of the cherry, are removed from the bean. And at this point, the beans would be ready to be bag sorted and exported. Wow, that is a <laughs> lot of work for one pound of coffee. It is, yes. For small farmers or, you know, places where they have a co-op or, you know, in Green Mountain Coffee Growers where they have a lot of different coffee growers who have their own micro lots and small farms, you'll have one processing plant that they all use. Is most of the dry processing done by hand? Are there any tools involved? So, you know, it really depends on the farm. In some cases, it would all be done by hand. In other cases, it would be partly done by hand and then there could be some like agitator that the beans get put into to remove the husk and the, the mucilage, just kind of rubbing them together, but some part of it would still need to be done by hand. I keep saying wow because it's incredible. It's intensive. <laughs> it's definitely an intensive process where these beans, they're really, really, when I say they're cared for by hand, they really are. But is Arabica primarily done this way or is it primarily done wet or semi-wet? Wet processing is probably the most common form of processing, and that's what we're going to talk about now, but dry processing is very popular. In some places, it's absolutely necessary. So in Ethiopia and in Africa, dry processing is probably still the most common way of processing, but it's also common throughout the world. Wet processing is probably the most common, but I wouldn't say by a big margin. And so with wet processing, coffee is washed. People like wet processing because it's a very consistent method. Because you're washing the coffee, rather than letting it just ferment and dry, in the open, you can control the flavors that are impacting the coffee. Someone say you get the purest coffee flavor from here because it doesn't have any external environmental influences. During wet processing, fresh coffee cherries are sorted by size and passed through a pulping machine that mechanically separates the husk from the bean. Once pulped, the beans are submerged in water-filled fermentation tanks for at least a few hours, but it can be up to a few days, depending on 
the farmer's desired taste profile. The longer the beans soak, the less of that sweet fruity usage flavor will soak into the bean. So soaking the beans is a twofold advantage. It ferments the bean naturally and dissolves the parchment in mucilage. So once fermented, these beans are washed to remove any remaining parchment, and then they're dried in the sun or in large drying tumblers. Once they're dry, again, they're ready to be bagged and exported. So again, wet processing is very popular because you can get a really pure flavor without additional sweetness from the mucilage sinking in or any kind of environmental impact. But it's also very resource intensive because that water cannot be released back into a body of water. It needs to be purified or disposed of properly because it's pretty dirty. Right. So it's it's controllable, but it costs more. Yeah, it costs more for the environment. We only work with companies that are environmentally conscious when disposing of their wet processing water, but you know, some people just dump it. So it can create a lot of pollution. And the next is semi-washed process, and that is also known as wet hauling. And it is the most common processing method for small holding farms, micro lots, and especially farms in Indonesia. So during the semi-wash process, the hull and some of the mucilage is removed from the bean. The bean is left to ferment for up to 48 hours. Once semi-dry, the remaining mucilage and parchment are removed and the beans are laid out to dry while their moisture levels are still high. So as it's dry processing, the beans in this moist state will absorb flavors from the drying surface. It could be asphalt, brick, or earth. Often semi-processed beans, particularly in Indonesia, are actually dried while they're being transported allowing them to develop these really unique earthy tones and just absorbing everything from the land that they're traveling over, which could be peppers and mangoes and get some really unique flavors and characters there. So they're laid out to dry on the road and then they're packed yeah. up again as they journey towards the market? Well, I mean, yeah, they'd be in flatbed trucks, but they wouldn't be going to market. They'd still be going to a final processing plant. So they're in trucks and they're open to the environment? Yep. Wow. Yep. I mean, I'm sure there's probably some tarp to prevent them if there's rain, but in a lot of those places, as you're driving down, it'd probably be very hot, like in Sumatra and stuff. For small farms and farms that are very remote, that is the safest way to transport the beans, the semi-wash state, because it's allowing them to ferment without rotting, but it's not getting them to the point where they could rot, you know, but they're cleaned and processed and ready, and then they have to be transported hundreds of miles before they can get to an export zone, not in proper storage. So once the beans are fully clean and green and ready to be exported, they need to be stored properly or they can rot. Our final type of processing is honey processing. So honey processing is also referred to as pulped natural or meal processing. And it's a very modern twist on semi-washing that gives producers really a lot of control over beans texture, acidity, and flavor profile. During honey processing, the husk and some of the mucilage, that's that sticky, sweet, honey-flavored substance that separates the parchment from the pulp, are removed from the bean. The amount of mucilage that remains on the bean determines the bean's color and character profile. So this is probably more than you need to know, but if 90% of the mucilage is left on the bean for drying, it's going to be really sweet, sweet bean. It's black, and that would be called black honey processed. If approximately 80% of the mucilage remains for processing, we call that red honey processed. If it's 50% mucilage on the bean, we call that yellow honey processed. And if approximately 25% of the mucilage remains on the bean, it's a golden honey processed. Anything less than 25% of mucilage would be called white honey processed. So while drying and fermenting, the beans absorb this mucilage's sweet honey flavor, getting a real nice natural sweetness. The more mucilage that's 
attached to the bean, the longer the bean takes to dry and obviously the sweeter the flavor. Again, once the beans reach a humidity level of about 11%, they're milled, sorted, bagged, and ready for export. So this honey processing, it really shows how control is important to sort of cajole the bean and bring out the characteristics that you want from a particular bean. Yeah, we have our woolly rhino coffee. That yeah. has a really nice natural sweetness that's rare for Sumatra. So that one is honey processed because we wanted to accentuate this almost like plummy sweetness. It's just naturally in the bean. We have that one honey processed because we love that sweetness and it's rare and unique in a coffee. Right. Um, you know, following this logic, it sort of occurs to me that beans from certain regions would respond better to different types of drying processes. Definitely. So is there a particular processing that's used by region? So you'd find more semi-processing in Asia, more wet processing probably in Central and South America, and more dry processing in Africa. But again, it's really up to each individual farm. So any region can do any kind of processing. I'm sure that people do it based on, you know, economic circumstances, based on the beans profile. I'm sure a lot of decisions go into why it's processed a particular way. For many places that are very dry, you're not going to wet process. Right. Way too water intensive. You know, places where you have to travel a long distance to get from the harvest to the processing plant, you're probably going to semi-wash. So once the beans are fully dried and in a state of what we call pergamino, the parchment is removed and the beans are sorted by screen size. And screen size is just their size because you need beans of an even size to make an even roast. Even though we grind the beans, if the beans aren't of the same size when they're roasted, you'll have a really uneven coffee. It'd be like trying to saute five different pieces of meat that are all vastly different widths and sizes, but the same exact time in the same pan. You'll end up with complete lack of consistency. So to ensure that we have a consistent coffee, all the beans are sorted by screen size. And screen size also goes into determining their quality grade often and their price. During this process, people often will go through by hand and remove defective beans. So beans are allowed so many defects to be called specialty coffee. Once that's done, samples of each lot are taste tested. And if they're delicious, which they usually are, the green beans will be sent out to brokers and roasters throughout the world. During this time, the beans are stored and ready for shipment either jupe or burlap sacks. They weigh about 130 to 150 pounds each. Once purchased by brokers or roasters, these large sacks are then piled onto shipping containers and sent via boat to port to journey on to their final destination, which would be the roaster. Any beans that don't make the quality cut tend to be consumed domestically. Once at the roasters, the beans will again be taste test roasted and experimented on until the roaster determines the best roast shade for that particular bean. And so, and there you have it. It's the exciting, unexpected life of the coffee bean. For more on roasting, please check out our podcast, episode four. If bean specifics interest you and you'd like to hear more about this, including what Cindy kind of tapped into the varietals, let us know and we will do another podcast on this. And with that, let's talk about sweets. So Cindy, what do you have for us today? Uh, thanks, Nicole. So during this difficult time, just like many of you have been doing, which has become evident if you were walking down the baking aisle in the grocery store, everything is empty. Like most of you, I have been experimenting in the kitchen. And of course, if I'm experimenting in the kitchen, it's coffee-related recipes. While I have introduced many new recipes recently, including cookies and cannolis, 
Today, I'm going to focus on bread. I have been flexing my baking muscle, as I said, and one of my favorite creations has to be the espresso cinnamon swirl bread, which you can find on our blog. So the reason I started developing the recipe was because I was having these vivid dreams, and my dreams were involving food, specifically cinnamon rolls and espresso. So it occurred to me, why not combine them? And I was scrolling through social media and I got swept up in the baking frenzy that was going on around me. And I was fortunate enough to find yeast. Can you believe it? In the grocery store. I don't know about you, but there were three grocery stores all sold out of yeast. Every baking aisle was completely empty. Nicole, did you encounter that? Yep. I couldn't find flour or yeast. I even tried to buy it from a different country and I couldn't get it. But I did learn, actually, for anyone who has it, I ended up using older yeast so it Yeast expires pretty quickly, but if it's stored in a cool, dry spot, which pretty much this whole place is a cool, dry spot, <laughs> it lasts longer. So mine, mine actually still happened to be active. So I could not find, I went to three or four stores, couldn't find any, couldn't buy it online. Finally, I was like, oh, I'll try my old yeast. And it did work. So if you can't find yeast and you have old yeast, it's not too past its date. I think mine was three months past its date. And it's been kept in a dry, cool place. You might still be good if you can find flour. Right, right. It also took me a while to find flour, but I was fortunate enough to get both yeast and flour. I had sugar, so I was ready to go. And so I looked up a bunch of recipes about cinnamon rolls and jelly rolled breads, and I combined them and I came up with this espresso cinnamon swirl bread. And the recipe itself is very straightforward. And honestly, the result is so beautiful that you would think it was much harder to prepare than it actually was. I had almost no experience with the jelly roll technique that creates the swirl. So I was pretty scared and I was not sure what the result was gonna be, but I was pleasantly surprised and I found it much easier than it looked. And so since I was fortunate enough with that result, I actually created an espresso glaze that I put on top of the bread to even boost up the flavor some more. So I'm not gonna take you through the recipe step by step. As I said, it's posted on the blog and it's pretty easy to follow, but I'm gonna leave you with some tips that I discovered while making this bread at home. First, you should check your collection of pans. So I didn't own the proper size loaf pan, which made me create a freeform bread, which tasted wonderfully. If I did it again, I would use a loaf pan because it would allow for the flavors to be more concentrated. My second tip would be that if you love the espresso cinnamon swirl, you actually could increase the amount of filling in the bread. So look at the recipe and increase it by half more and you'll get more of that delicious cinnamon espresso richness in the center of your bread. The recipe is definitely flavorful as it is, but if you love the sweet, sticky filling, you might wanna up the ante on the flavor just a tad. And lastly, my final bit of advice is just to be patient. Let the dough rise and rest according to the instructions. I'll admit when I was doing it, it seemed like a lot. I kept covering it, I kept moving it to a warm spot but the dough ended up being so easy to work with. All I can say is that the weight is well worth it because the final product is so delicious. So the recipe that I put up on the blog makes two loaves of bread and I was able to give one to some first responders. It was gone in minutes and it made me feel so happy that they got to enjoy it. I just say, go for it, try the recipe out. And as always, if you should bake the recipe, please let me know. Leave a comment on the blog, coffeewiththequeen.com. We always love to get your feedback. And with that, I'm going to pass the mic back to Nicole. Thanks, Cindy. Yeah, no, that's so good on the screen. I always kind of want to reach in and pull it out. But as you were saying with the fidgeting and 
getting impatient with bread. I love to make bread. And one of the tricks I've learned is to put my oven on 350 for about two minutes right before I start preparing the dough, turn it off, open the oven door so it's not too hot. And then when I'm covering it, I'll use a clear plastic bag, pop it in the oven, close the door, you know, oven's off, it's, it's cool, and put the light on. So that way I don't need to be trying to touch it and move it all the time because otherwise I'm always trying to look to see if it's risen. Nicole, that's an amazing tip and I appreciate it. No, it's, it's, it looks good. I think everyone should go and check out this recipe. And so that's, that's it. That concludes episode nine of Coffee with the Queen. Thank you guys for joining us again. And again, links to everything that we've discussed today are available on our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com and on our podcast site, coffeewiththequeen.podbean.com. If you like this podcast, please let us know by giving us five stars on iTunes. If you have any feedback on what we've discussed today or topics that you'd like discussed in the future, please let us know. You can either leave a comment on the blog site or email us at info at Finally, to learn more about us or our coffee, please visit our website, thequeenbean.com. Thanks again, and hope you guys have a great start to summer. See you in June. See you next time, guys.